uh, very grateful that Brother Jim Whitmire and Brother Gene Clover were able to teach the previous nights. And then tomorrow night, Brother Ben Hogan uh, will present the final class in here. Uh, tonight, as we continue our study of the wilderness in Scripture, we come to the life of Elijah, as has already been mentioned. Elijah is one of the, 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 the great spiritual leaders in the Old Testament, and he is no stranger to the wilderness. In fact, Elijah bursts on the scene in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, where he shows up at the palace of King Ahab, the king over the northern kingdom of Israel, and he, and he declares to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, he, he did this because Ahab, along with his infamous wife Jezebel, had made the worship of a Canaanite deity named Baal the state-sponsored religion of northern Israel. And Baal was a god of rain for the land of Canaan. That meant in this agricultural society, he was important to them. Because if they don't have rain, they don't have crops. And so they've drawn this equation that if Baal is the god of rain, then we better worship him and please him so that we can grow the crops and we can take care of our cattle and we can survive. And so that's what Elijah is encountering as he enters the scene. We have no backstory on Elijah. We don't have a history, a genealogy, a background of any sort. He's just popping on the scene, walking into the king's palace, and declaring a message from God. And so when Elijah does this, he's not just declaring that there will be no more rain. He's declaring that there's going to be war between Yahweh and this false god named Baal. And after doing that, after bursting on the scene, making such a bold proclamation, you would think that God would be ready to utilize him in a unique way. You would think that it was time for him to assemble the followers of Yahweh and go to battle, in a sense. You would think it was time for him to be preaching and prophesying throughout the nation in the city squares of the towns of Israel. You would think it was time for him to have a very public, a very in-your-face, a very loud and bolsterous ministry. But God didn't assign that to Elijah. What God did instead was to send Elijah to the wilderness. Because the very next verse, after Elijah bursts on the scene and makes this declaration to King Ahab, we find out that God then instructed him to go to the brook Cherith and there survive. Now, Cherith was in the wilderness. It's a very remote and desolate location. This picture on the screen is a picture taken in the 1930s of the traditional site of the brook 
Cherith. Now, there's no way for us to know for certain that this is the right location, but it does give you a general idea of just how desolate and remote the region to which Elijah is sent really is. This is barren. This land is lonely. This location is inhospitable. This place is uncomfortable. This isn't the place that you want to survive. It is indeed the wilderness. But this is where God sent Elijah. In in this instance, Elijah didn't go to the wilderness by choice. He went there by command. He's told to go to the wilderness. It's very similar to Jesus in the New Testament, who you will be talking about tomorrow night, but in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, uh, when we read about the temptation of Jesus, he's led by the Spirit there. He's not necessarily going by choice, it's by command. And that's the case with Elijah here. And I think there's two primary reasons why God sent Elijah into the wilderness. I think God sent Elijah to the wilderness, number one, to protect him. The instruction in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 3 was for Elijah to hide by the brook Cherith. Uh, Elijah was sent into the wilderness in part so that he could stay alive. You see, one thing we know uh, from chapter 18 of 1 Kings, we know that ever since it became apparent that Elijah's no-rain prophecy was true, Jezebel began executing the prophets of the Lord. That's stated in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 3. She's killing off everyone associated with the worship of Yahweh. And who's bigger in that category than Elijah? He's the ultimate prize if you're trying to execute prophets of Yahweh. And so God sends him in the wilderness in part to protect him. And we also learn in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 10 that Ahab was searching for Elijah. So Elijah was sent to the wilderness to hide from Ahab and Jezebel during the earliest parts of this drought that Elijah had prayed for and prophesied about. And so one reason God sent Elijah into the wilderness was to protect him, but I believe another reason God sent Elijah into the wilderness was to prepare him. The term cherith comes from a Hebrew word that means to cut off or to cut down. It likely was a reference to this location being a ravine-like geographic feature that the brook had created out of the rock and the land as it cut through and cut down the hillside. But its name is significant because this wilderness location, this wilderness location was going to be the place where Elijah was cut off from society and where he would be cut down to size, so to speak. See, the wilderness was going to be the place where Elijah would learn lessons that he could only learn in this isolated, barren country. And they're lessons that God initiated for him. Lessons to prepare him for the bigger mission that was to come after the drought, after the famine. And so while there, I believe he learned, for instance, contentment. 
because his meals weren't delivered by Uber or DoorDash or Grubhub or whatever other company you like to pull up on your, your phone. They were delivered by birds, ravens to be more precise. The Israelites did not particularly like ravens. I mean, if you journey over to uh, Leviticus chapter 11 or Deuteronomy chapter 14, you find out that ravens are listed among the unclean animals, the animals you couldn't eat. Not that you really want to eat a raven, but they were on that list. And in some cases, an unclean animal wasn't even supposed to be touched. Now, I want you to think about this. It's not that Elijah is trying to catch these birds and eat them, but these birds that are unclean are delivering his food. And I don't think they're necessarily delivering steaks or pizzas or Oreo cookies. Imagine, no, they're not delivering Chick-fil-A. That was the manna from heaven, so... Um, Think about what a bird might deliver. What would now ravens are are scavengers, and what do scavenging birds typically go for? What? <laughs> Whatever's on the road dead. Roadkill. Now you can go to Texas Roadhouse. I think they've got something called roadkill there, but no, that's that's actually good. I don't imagine that what gets dropped off at Elijah's doorstep out there in the wilderness is fine dining. But it is divine dining because God's supplying it. And he's having to learn contentment as this food is being delivered to him that may not be the, the best or the cleanest or the most wanted. He's having to deal with food coming from animals that carry diseases and though I'm sure God protected him in some fashion from that. But the mental hurdle he'd have to get over to just start eating the food that's dropped off by those birds, that's a challenge in and of itself. So I believe that process taught him contentment. But I also believe while he's out here in the wilderness, he, he, that as he's been sent by God to go into, I believe he's also learning obedience. Because you read that description of his survival in the wilderness in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 2 and through 4. And what you'll see is that it's not the best accommodations. When you read these verses, you'll discover that his time in the wilderness required isolation. He was sent there to hide. That means he is intentionally going to disconnect from society. He's not going to have any social interaction for the duration of his stay. It's going to be an isolated experience. And it's going to be uncomfortable. He's going to be living outdoors by a creek, not in a walled, roofed residence with air conditioning and plumbing. And it's going to be an experience of dependence. Because he's not choosing when he eats or when the food's available. The meals are being provided divinely for him by God. Isolation, discomfort, complete dependence, that's the definition of his experience in the wilderness. And yet we're told in verse 5 of 1 Kings chapter 17 that Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. 
He receives directions from God that he can tell right off the bat, okay, I'm going to be alone. I'm going to be uncomfortable. And I'm going to be completely dependent on God just to survive. Jonah ran away for much less than that. But not Elijah. He goes. And so I believe part of his experience was learning obedience. But there is one third thing I think he learned, and that was patience. It's interesting to me about the whole food thing, and you notice I'm really focused on the food thing. Maybe I didn't eat enough today. But God's food delivery service for Elijah is interesting because he's only delivering enough food for that meal. It's kind of like the manna that the the Israelites had in the wilderness. They get enough for that day. So that morning, food is dropped off for Elijah, just enough for that morning meal. He doesn't have a pantry he's stockpiling or a freezer he's keeping food in. Morning and evening, he's waiting on that delivery to sustain him for that meal and trusting that tomorrow the birds are going to show up with another meal. He's having to learn patience and endurance because he doesn't have control over the timing of those birds. What if the birds showed up five minutes late than the day before? What if the birds showed up an hour later than the day before? What if the birds showed up a couple of hours later? Maybe God had them on a set schedule because this is divinely designed. What if it was raining and the birds were slowed? You have to learn some serious patience when you don't have control over when you eat. And also, there's this brook that he's stationed next to that has water in it for him to drink. But we're in a drought, right? The text tells us that brook is drying up. And imagine him living out there watching the water level decrease day by day by day until you're getting to those last drinks with it and wondering when God's going to tell you what to do next. I can imagine that there's incredible patience involved because you have no control over the timing of everything at this point. And God hadn't told him what the backup plan was for when that brook dried up. So he's having to learn patience as well. And I think all of these traits, the learning contentment, learning obedience, learning patience, factor into his ability to do what's next. Because after this wilderness training experience, Elijah engaged in one of the most, if not the most, dramatic spiritual victory in the Bible outside of the cross. Because in 1 Kings chapter 18, he went to Mount Carmel and engaged in a duel of sorts with the prophets of Baal and was victorious. You can scan through 1 Kings chapter 18, and there you'll read how uh, on that mountain, the 450 prophets of Baal built an altar to their deity, and Elijah built an altar to his. Prepared the animal and everything. Everything was identical. And the plan was, you call out to your God, and I'll call out to my God, and whichever God sends the fire down, that's the one true God. Now think about this. The Canaanite deity, Baal, 
is the God of rain, what often accompanies rain? Thunder and lightning. When lightning hits something, what is it capable of doing? Starting a fire. Elijah is making this challenge very easy for Baal. He's trying to make it simple. Because what does he do to his altar? If you read through 1 Kings chapter 18, he digs a trench around his and douses his animal and the wood and everything, the ground and everything around it with water until this trench fills up. He's trying to make it difficult for Yahweh because he wants it to be inescapable proof at the end of the day who is God. And after all the prayers are said, and all the crying out is done. Yahweh is victorious. Yahweh proves that he's the one true God. And there on, the Mount, on Mount Carmel, Baal was shown to be powerless. His prophets were executed. And the Israelites once again proclaimed, The Lord Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh is God. It's everything Elijah could ask for. It's the greatest spiritual moment of his life, but as one preacher said, nobody gets to stay on the mountaintop forever. And such is the case with Elijah when we read the events that followed Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 19. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of class tonight. So if you'll turn to 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1, we're going to read a few verses very quickly. 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Here's what I want you to uh, think about. Elijah, through the power of God, just orchestrated this amazing spiritual victory. And what does he do next? He runs for his life. He's afraid of what Jezebel might do to him, so he runs and he goes into hiding. At, at this moment, Elijah chooses the wilderness. When we were talking previously in 1 Kings chapter 17 about his time at the brook Cherith, God chose that for him. God commanded him to go there. But this time, this isn't God's direction. This is of his own free will. He chooses to go into the wilderness. And why does he choose to go into the wilderness? He retreated there because even though his side won on Mount Carmel, he was still afraid. 
He retreated into the wilderness because despite his victory, he was battling a new enemy. He was battling the enemy of despair. Ahab and Jezebel still reigned, and they were threatening his life. They had conquered other lives already. And now, even though he, he had overseen this great spiritual victory, from his perspective, the future still looked bleak because his opposition still looked big. And so Elijah ran into the wilderness battling his own depression. I mean, look at what he's doing in the wilderness. He's out there belaboring, not belaboring, sorry. He's out there decrying his situation. He's out there talking to God and asking for God to take his life. When Jonah does it in Jonah chapter 4, it's because Jonah's selfish, egotistical, and just plain unrighteous. In this moment, Elijah's requesting for death because he sees no reason to keep on living. And here's the thing. Unfortunately, many of us know what it's like to be in Elijah's shoes. We know what it's like to face despair. We know what it's like, in spite of all the great things going on around us, to still feel the weight of depression. And so tonight we're going to talk about the wilderness of depression a little bit. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm, I'm not a professional therapist. I'm not equipped in that arena. So I'm, I'm not here to uh, provide expert professional counsel in this regard. All I am is a communicator of God's Word, and I'm going to do my best to share thoughts from it that relate to the subject. And I, but I want to start with a definition. I want to start by defining despair. Despair is the complete loss or absence of hope. That's one definition. It came from the internet, so it's got to be true, right? Despair is that state of hopelessness you enter when you are overwhelmed with negative emotions, and as a result, you are no longer able to see how things are going to improve simply because your perspective has been tainted in some way. Despair can be caused by multiple factors, but more often than not, it derives from one of two major factors. Despair may be the result of biology first. What I mean is that God designed our bodies to produce this chemical called serotonin. Serotonin is sometimes known as the happy chemical because it appears to play an important role in regulating mood. Sometimes the body doesn't produce enough of this chemical and, and low levels of serotonin, as one medical website says, have been associated with depression. And we need to realize that sometimes our despair may be the result of a biochemical situation that may need to be addressed by a physician. We don't need to overlook that, nor do we need to look down on it. There are some instances where there is something going on in your body that is causing it and needs to be addressed by a professional. But despair may also be the result of circumstance. 
And what I mean is that despair may come as a result of circumstances brought on by life. We may be the initiators of such circumstances through our poor choices or our rebellious spirit, but we can also be the victim of such circumstances. And despair is brought on by unfortunate events over which we have no control, like the death of a loved one or a scary medical diagnosis or the loss of a job. So despair may be the result of biology. Despair may be the result of circumstance. And I'm certain we could label other contributors to despair. But these two seem to be the primary, the biggest contributors to our loss of hope. Before we go any further, I want to address one question. A question that that I've been asked several times in my career as a minister. And that is... Is experiencing despair a sin or a sign of an inferior faith? Is it wrong to be depressed? Is it a sign that I'm a weaker brother or a weaker sister? See, there's this popular myth that Christians should never feel bad. That's why when we show up for worship and somebody walks up to you and says, How are you doing? We all have the same fake answer, don't we? I'm fine. I just yelled at my wife in the car. I just smacked my kid across the head, but I'm fine. There's no other biblical answer, is there? When somebody asks how you're doing. We have a tendency not to be completely truthful. Now, let's be honest. There are times you are fine. You're not faking it. You really are fine. Sometimes you'll be asked that question and things are going good. And you don't mean to be cliche or anything. You say, I'm fine, because you literally are. But there are other times where we put on a fake smile and act like everything's okay, because that's what you do in the church. At least that's what we've been taught. Shouldn't the church be the one place where you can be real all the time and not feel ashamed about it? Shouldn't the church be the one place where you can walk in and say, it's not fine? and have people that will help you. But we have this myth that we've popularized, that it's not okay for Christians to feel bad, that they should never get discouraged, that they should never go through periods of despair. Some people act as though it's a sin to experience despair. But that's a fallacy. Despair happens to all of us. As one preacher said, being discouraged does not mean that you are carnal. It means that you are normal. Unfortunately, the weaknesses of our mortal bodies and the state of this fallen world have the ability to undermine our ability to thrive in hope at times. And we need to acknowledge that. And when you go to the Bible, you'll discover that several biblical heroes, several individuals who are mentioned in that hall of faith, faith, the faith hall of fame of Hebrews chapter 11, went through periods of despair. For example, there's David. David experienced despair. Think about that period of his life between his defeat of Goliath and his ascent to the throne. Even though he had been anointed the next king of Israel, even though he had conducted himself with integrity, even though he faithfully served King Saul, he spent the prime years of his life seeking shelter in caves, sacrificing his most significant relationships, and living like a fugitive of the state. 
all because, all because Saul was jealous of him. And that created some deep moments of despair in, in David's life. Oftentimes we think of the Psalms as these great songs of, of joy and rejoicing that David wrote. But David wrote some dark laments as well. For instance, you can go to Psalm chapter 69 and verse 20. And David wrote these words. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Those are the words of the man after God's own heart. If he can experience moments of despair, so can you and I. And then there's Jeremiah. Jeremiah experienced despair. God called Jeremiah to be his prophet, but Jeremiah quite possibly had the worst assignment from God anybody's ever been given. He's a prophet at the end of the southern kingdom of Judah's existence. And his prophetic ministry brought him into conflict with kings, with priests, and with false prophets. He was subject to constant persecution, including death threats that you can read about in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 21. Beatings that you can read about in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, as well as chapter 37 and verse 15. Multiple imprisonments, you can read about those in Jeremiah chapter 20, chapter 32, chapter 37. And on one occasion, he was even thrown into an empty cistern where he was left to die of hunger. Jeremiah chapter 38. And as a result of all that persecution, Jeremiah experienced deep despair. It's best communicated in Lamentations, just the name of the book alone, right? Lamentations chapter 3, verse 17, Jeremiah wrote these words, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. There are some Christians who know exactly what he's saying. But for whatever reason, they're not allowed to express that to fellow Christians they're not allowed to share that deep pain because we believe the myth that you should never feel bad or down. But even the Apostle Paul had moments of despair. Paul experienced it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. He mentioned the affliction that he and his companions experienced in Asia, which he said was so great that they wanted to die, just like Elijah. I don't know exactly what their affliction was. But I think about it, or I put it in comparison with things he mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In the start of this book, uh, the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul says he has dealt with some stuff, that has brought him to the point where they despaired of life itself. At the end of this same letter, he gave a list of the things he dealt with. Multiple imprisonments, countless beatings, attempted executions, five floggings, three beatings with rods, a stoning, three shipwrecks, as well as a night and a day adrift at sea. In addition to all that, he endured frequent travel, danger from the elements, as well as danger from people, sleepless nights, starvation, dehydration, and exposure. If you don't believe me, just read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 27. That's his list of all he endured. 
But when he gave that list, not one of those items is what he said caused the despair in his life. He didn't associate the despair specifically with these things, so what if it's something even greater than what appears in that list? Needless to say, Paul endured some of the most debilitating circumstances any missionary could imagine. And by comparison, the affliction he references in Asia in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians was so great that he despaired of life itself. Listen, if the Apostle Paul can experience despair, I feel okay about experiencing it myself. So here's what I want you to understand. The fact that the Bible provides these examples indicates that experiencing despair is not abnormal, nor does that mean it is in and of itself sinful. But we do need to make a distinction here. Because even though dealing with despair is not a sin, dwelling on it can be. That's because despair is an attribute of the lost, not the saved in the grand scheme of things. Let me show you two verses very quickly. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Paul indicated that those outside of Christ are not only separated from Christ, but also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant, uh, covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In this verse, Paul indicates that those outside of Christ are classified as hopeless. You may experience hopelessness, but as a child of God, you are never hopeless. And so if you dwell in the realm of hopelessness, if you stay there and reside there and don't seek to escape it, you're staying in the realm that really only belongs to the lost. And then there's 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, where Peter said that those who are in Christ have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here Peter is saying that those who are in Christ are hopeful because Jesus is alive and one day we will get to join him. And so while you may go through experiences where you lack hope, you shouldn't stay there. Because of Christ, you should find a way out of that knowing that what awaits you in Him is far better than what you're dealing with right now. So there are going to be times when all of us encounter seasons of despair, but if we are in Christ, we should not reside there. Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? And I don't have all the answers. I'm certain there, there are some who are here tonight or listening to this message online or will hear it later on that need better answers than I can give. And I encourage anyone who's dealing with depression to seek out professional help. Here at this congregation, we, we have partnered with some professional counselors who can assist you, and we will gladly connect you with them. Your confidentiality will, will remain with us just in giving you that information. And those counselors that we use do not report the details of their meetings with our members to the elders because they have a legal responsibility of confidentiality just like your doctor does. 
if you need that sort of help, reach out to me or any of the ministers or any of the shepherds, and we'll gladly connect you with someone who can provide that level of uh, help with your, with your despair. But let me give some advice, some information that we can glean from Elijah's story. Because I believe the story of Elijah here in 1 Kings chapter 19 does provide us with some good guidelines for understanding what it's going to take in order for us to combat despair. So let's take a moment and look at what it took for Elijah to overcome his despair. First thing I want you to notice is that in order to defeat despair, you've got to communicate with God. Notice what Elijah said after he fled Carmel to Beersheba. 1 Kings chapter 19, the second half of verse 4, first half of verse 5. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Now we've already mentioned this passage. We've already noted that Elijah reached the point where he despaired of living. But I think it's significant that Elijah's communicating with God. Don't overlook that little tidbit of a fact that Elijah is communicating with God, even though he's communicating something that God doesn't like. You know how I know God doesn't like it? Because God doesn't answer this prayer with a yes. It's important for us to understand that even though this verse doesn't specify any instructions that God gave Elijah, it does reveal an important step in overcoming the baggage of despair, and that is the step of communication. Elijah was honest, and Elijah was transparent with God. He communicated how he felt and why he felt that way, and I, like I said, don't sense that God was bothered by Elijah's prayer. Think about the instructions God has given to us when it comes to prayer. He's instructed us to pray without ceasing. He's instructed us to pray about everything. You see, God wants us to communicate even in our moments of despair because God is the one who knows exactly what is needed in response to our prayers. Never underestimate the power of prayer, even in those moments of despair. See, when Elijah... Let me back that up. Elijah is one of the great prayer people in the Bible. In fact, in James chapter 5, when James instructs us to pray for one another, he then goes on to appeal to Elijah's example of praying for it not to rain, and it didn't rain, and then praying for it to rain, and it did rain. But think about Elijah's life for a moment. Not only did his life start off with him announcing that it won't rain until he says it will, and he, and by implication, he's praying to God for it not to rain, and God withheld the rain. God answered his prayer. But then you have this uh, situation where after his time at the brook Cherith, he then goes to live with a widow who has a son who eventually died. And he prayed for God to raise up that dead boy, and God raised up that dead boy. And then, as I've already mentioned, when it came time for it to rain, after the, whole, or, or after the whole Mount Carmel episode, he prayed for rain, and guess what? Rain came down. 
when he was on Mount Carmel and he prayed for the fire to strike his altar, the fire came down. Elijah is an amazing prayer. -er. I don't know. He's amazing at prayer. God has answered all these prayers, but when Elijah prayed that prayer, the prayer about ending his life, God didn't heed his response. Because God knows exactly what you need even before you ask, as Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8 says. God knew that's not, that's not what Elijah really needed. But he's going to supplement what Elijah does need as we'll see in just a moment. You need to understand that prayer is our way of acknowledging that we need God's help. And when you're dealing with despair and depression, there may not be a, a, a bigger instance of your need for God's help than that. And prayer is our way of recognizing His authority to act. It's our way of saying, God, you can do something about this. And so I'm bringing it to you and asking for you to intervene because I don't know how to do, do this on my own or I can't do this on my own. So the first step that I can offer when it comes to dealing with despair is to communicate with God just like Elijah does here. But in order to defeat despair, you need to also seek a time of refreshment. Isn't it fascinating that after Elijah pray, prays, he takes a nap? Bedtime prayers work, right? But I want you to see what happens after the nap. Picking up in the second half of verse 5 of 1 Kings chapter 19, we're told that, Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. The first thing God does here in response to Elijah's prayer was to have him, to have him eat a meal and take a nap. Sounds like a good Sunday afternoon, don't it? That is very interesting to me since God is the originator of rest, having himself rested on the seventh day and having instituted the Sabbath day under Mosaic law. And I find it interesting because there's even a day in the ministry of Jesus when he, the Son of God, ordered his apostles to rest. It's in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 and 31. They had just finished a, a campaign, and they came back and told him all that had happened. And in verse 31, Jesus said to him, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. God knows your body needs rest and refreshment. That's why VBS always has snacks. It's God-ordained. I'm being facetious, of course. But understand this. Rest is needed even for your mind. Rest 
has a theological underpinning to it. Rest is a demonstration of your trust in and reliance on God. When we rest, we surrender control to the Lord by intentionally refraining from active control. I have no control over anything when I go to sleep. I don't have control over if I wake up. I don't have control over if I breathe. I don't have control over if somebody enters my house. When I'm asleep, I have absolutely zero control. When you rest, you're giving control over to someone else. I think that's why David wrote these words in Psalm chapter 3. It's a psalm that he wrote as he was fleeing his son Absalom, who was taking over the country. And in Psalm chapter 3 and verse 5, David wrote these words, I lay down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. David is acknowledging in this psalm that God was in control and God took care of him while he rested. David's acknowledging in this psalm that he's relinquishing control when he's resting. Our rest can function as an expression of trust and reliance on the one who grants us rest. And sometimes when you are dealing with emotions and internal baggage that is weighing you down, that is creating despair, that is hurting you, sometimes the best thing you can do is stop. Stop being busy. Stop going and running and filling your schedule up. Sometimes the best thing you can do is rest. And in Elijah's story, it doesn't seem like it belongs there, but rest and refreshment are part of the equation. And so I think that's the second thing we can acknowledge from his defeat of despair. The third thing I want you to notice is that in order to combat despair, you need to hear a different perspective. So look again at 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to do a little bit more reading. We're going to read verses 9 through 14. And I want you to notice what God does in this interesting interlude within the story of Elijah's depression recovery, if you will. Verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces. The rock broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak 
and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it. And the Lord said to him, starting there in verse 15, but I want you to skip to verse 18. I want you to see what the Lord said in verse 18. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The one thing Elijah kept saying to the Lord, I'm the only one left. He's announcing that his despair is related to the fact that he's all alone. And God has orchestrated this unique scenario to help change Elijah's perspective of the situation. See, it appears that Jezebel's death threat had, had somehow caused Elijah to lose his perspective. So God led Elijah to a cave to correct that, and God accomplished this by doing two things, by reminding him of the past and by pointing him toward the future. You know, I think that the wind and the earthquake and the fire were God's way of reminding Elijah of his power, of Yahweh's power. You know, if I'm in that cave and there's a wind that breaks rocks apart, followed by an earthquake, and followed by a fire, I think I would be running. I don't think I'd want to hang out there anymore because what's going to be worse? What's, what's going to be the next thing, you know? And it was all a demonstration of God's might. And through those very activities, God reminded Elijah that he is the one who brought creation into existence, and therefore all of it all of its, is under his jurisdiction. But through them, God also reminded Elijah that he is the one who can use such destructive forces to judge those who oppose him. And such was the case with the flood. Such was the case with Sodom and Gomorrah. Such was the case with the enemy nations in the land of Canaan. And yet God, despite all these demonstrations of his might, chose ultimately to communicate via a whisper, as if to signify that he can accomplish great things even through the smallest and quietest of acts. Maybe that's his way of showing Elijah, you may feel all alone, but I can still accomplish everything I need to through you. Then after giving Elijah an opportunity to express his despair, once again, God pointed to the future. In particular, as we read in verse 18, he pointed out that there were 7,000 people in Israel who were still on his team. People who needed Elijah to lead them. I like the way one preacher said it. He said, it's as if God is telling Elijah that he doesn't need him on the sidelines. He needs him back in the game. Because even though Elijah may not be able to see it from his vantage point, God's team is going to be victorious. And here's the ultimate point. God's taking Elijah to this cave because God wants to change his point of view. God wants him to see that even if he's the only one left, God can still accomplish what he intends to. But he also wants him to see that he's not the only one left. 
that there are 7,000 others on his side. And here's the takeaway. You cannot help the way you feel, but you can control the way you think. In order to defeat despair, Elijah needed a new way of thinking. Sometimes that's the most important step. And I think that's why Scripture provides instructions about our thinking processes. Like Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, which says whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you administer this passage to your mind, to the process by which you allow content into your mind, to the process of which you dwell on things, it will filter out a lot of the bad. And then there's Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, which says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. That your thinking process should be focused on heavenly matters, on kingdom matters, rather than earthly matters. Now, I know that's a very generic point to make. The idea of changing your perspective. And that might not be something you can do all on your own. And maybe that's why this fourth and last step exists here. And that is, you need to surround yourself with uplifting people. Look there in 1 Kings again. We're going to read the section we skipped, verse 15 through 21. And the Lord said to Elijah, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And then in verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted. What happens here is that part of God's instruction is, I want you to go recruit these other guys. I want you to go get Hazael. I want you to go get Jehu. I want you to go get Elisha. They're going to be on your side, at least in the terms of Hazael and Jehu, for a little bit. When we suffer from despair, it's very easy for us to want to isolate ourselves. I mean, that's exactly what Elijah wanted to do. But that's probably the worst possible therapy because it can lead to self-pity or it can lead to self-absorption, as one pointed out. And neither of those are going to be good for your soul. That's why part of God's remedy is community. Think about 
how much of Elijah's ministry he's been by himself. He spent those three years living alone in the wilderness. He stood alone on Mount Carmel, and he had just fled to a cave where he was hiding by himself. But when it came time for Elijah to emerge from his despair, God instructed him to assemble a team. God understands that in order for us to defeat despair, we can't do it alone. So he provides instructions for us to develop intimate relationships with other believers. Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 hints at this intimacy when Paul said, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The idea here, well, I'm doing bad. The idea here is that you should be so intimately connected with your brothers and sisters in Christ that they know when you're celebrating something and they know when something is hurting you. And God provides instructions for us to develop uplifting with relationships with other believers. This is in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, where we're told to encourage one another every day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage every day. You know what that requires? In order for me to encourage you every day, what does that require? Some sort of contact every day. Hmm. How often did the church meet in the first century, at least in the book of Acts? Day by day. Now, logistically, I understand that that's not as feasible as it was in that time period. And I understand that that was not set as a precedent But our infrequency may contribute to some of our anxiety. Our infrequency of fellowship may contribute to some of our anxiety because we're not building each other up. We're not giving each other opportunity to build one another up. Maybe that should factor into our decisions about how we spend our time and who we spend time with. And Scripture provides instructions for us to develop accountable relationships with other believers as is the case in James chapter 5 and verse 16, where we're told to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. When was the last time you confessed your sins to somebody else? That's not something we take very seriously. It's not something we even look at in the context of a command, that I've got to tell somebody else my sin. We prefer the privacy of sin. We prefer for that to stay with us. But there's a reason God included that in Scripture. Because when I tell other people what I struggle with, they can help me bear it. And that brings us to one last verse, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, where we're told to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. These are instructions for us to develop relationships with other believers that strengthen us in our weaknesses. See, God intentionally created a community. You had Israel as a community under Mosaic law, and you have the church as a community under Christ's covenant. We've always been created to exist in community because there is a strength that can be found when we surround ourselves with uplifting people. I want to close out with this. Right now, you're either hopeful or hopeless. And your status is contingent on whether or not you are in Christ. 
I know that's very black and white to say it that way. But as I mentioned earlier, technically those who are hopeless are those who are lost. Because in Christ, we have hope. Back in the 1950s, a John Hopkins professor conducted a research experiment that would be deemed unethical today. He took lab rats and placed them individually in a jar that was half filled with water to see how long they would swim before they drowned. You see why it would be unethical today. Some gave up swimming after a few minutes while others swam for a few days. He then changed the experiment slightly. During phase two of the experiment, just before the rats were expected to give up, he picked them up, held them for a little while, and then put them back in the water. And that small interlude made a huge difference. The rats that experienced a brief reprieve swam much longer and lasted much longer than the rats who were left alone. It's as if when the rats learned that they were not doomed, that the situation was not lost, that there might be help, then they had a reason to keep swimming. And they did. The research conclusion was this. After elimination of hopelessness, the rats don't die. Christ has eliminated hopelessness from the equation if you are in him. You might struggle with despair. You might struggle with depression at times. But if you're in Christ, you will never truly be hopeless. Let's close out with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our opportunity to study your word tonight. We're grateful that we can be here at this Vacation Bible School. We pray that everything is going well for our children tonight and for our teens and for everyone who's here. And may it be a blessed event as we conduct it tonight and conclude it tomorrow night. And Lord, we've had an opportunity to study the life of Elijah and how it relates to the issues of despair and depression. It's our prayer that you be with us because there are certainly those among us who are battling those issues or have battled those issues or will battle those issues lord thank you for the examples of men in the bible who, who who dealt with their own despair so that we can recognize that it is not abnormal lord help us not be afraid to seek help when we experience it but most of all lord help us to find in you the solution to it Help us to understand that we are never hopeless if we're in Christ. Lord, we ask for your blessings on everyone here. May we travel home safely. And Lord, may we be a people who shine the light of hope even when we're struggling to see it. We love you, Lord, and it's through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who gives us hope. Amen.